Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. We appreciate everybody that's tuning in. This podcast is now up on YouTube. You can find us. All you got to do is type in the Big Honker Podcast, and uh, all of our episodes are up there now. So go check it out. Subscribe. Hit the like and subscribe button. I bet you hadn't heard that before a million times. The hunting season is over. The boring days of the waiting until September to get here. And listening to the Big Honker Podcast, apparently. And we do appreciate everyone for listening. We want to thank our sponsors. First sponsor is Alpha Outdoor Specialties, which is also our newest sponsor. And they're coming out with the Stanfield Stool, which we will release by the end of the month. So it was Alpha Outdoor Specialties. They can do anything. Fabrications, they got it all. Alpha Outdoor Specialties. And we will have a lot more on Alpha Outdoor Specialties after we release the Stanfield Stool, which will be the new way to hunt in comfort in an A-frame or a pit blind. No more hemorrhoids. Nope. I'm sitting on a bucket for too long. Alpha Outdoor Specialties. And then let's talk about Dive Bomb. It is the end of the year. The One of the major selling points of Dive Bomb is they are easy to pack away when the season is over. Especially if you get the bags like I've been telling you to do for the last three years. You get the bags, you put them away, clean them off, hose them off, do whatever you got to do, let them dry. Back in the bags, back in storage. For us, we just... Uh, we, we cleaned out our trailers and uh loaded them back up so it's an easy storage solution you don't have to take up a whole grain silo like you do with those clunky ass full bodies to me that is really packing them up is kind of the best thing uh in my mind and they're sitting ready to roll next year as soon as we ready to go to hunt we could go to north dakota in august if we wanted to to hunt and we could pull a trailer up there and it's ready to go uh, they got some new products on the market. They got the uh, kickback laydown chair. So if you're looking for that, it's got armrests and a nice, uh, hell, I think it'll even give you a massage if you get the deluxe version. But they got a lot of cool new products. You can check them out at divebombindustries.com. And if you're looking for an uh, easy way to uh, get away from the bulk of full bodies, Dive Bomb is definitely the way to go. And our boys over at Boss. Brandon and them got it going on. Folks. All made in America. It only, it's like a train. Only takes one. You don't have to shoot them three times to kill them. It takes one. They've had they've had product all winter. You've had to order them in the morning to get them by the time the day's out. I had a guy message me today and said, Jeff, I'm coming to see you next November. When do I need to order my boss? I said, as soon as you want to do it. He said, I ordered it. It's on the way now. It so doesn't go bad. If you come to the Big Honker Lodge, you can order your boss. Have it sent directly to the lodge. Pick it up when you're here. Guys from California that hunt with me, a lot of them order all their shells, have them delivered here, pick them up when they leave on a hunt because they can't get them in California without going through a bunch of paperwork and pain in the ass so if you want a boss that's the way to go that's bossshotshells.com hardest workers ever i mean to to be faced with what they have had to overcome this this uh this waterfowl season with the supply chain and all that other bullshit and to have inventory in stock ready to roll my hat's off to them they pulled it off uh they're the best in the business so that's that's who you should spend your money with bossshotshells.com some more people you should spend your money with are the boys up there, Spoke Compton, Washington, Mr. Trevor, Austin, Alex Jurgis, Pacific Calls. If you want to call in a bird, they've got a call for you. Whether you're chasing lessers, honkers, specks, snows, turkeys, turkeys coming up, they're a one-stop shop. And they are incredible guys. Um, if you want some custom engravings or whatever, I'm sure they'll be more than happy to oblige you. Just drop them a message, PacificCustomCalls.com. They've also got some sweet-looking gear that they're getting ready to release, uh, hats, shirts, and stuff stuff of the like. And I've gotten more messages about this. They said, hey, I saw you were wearing a Smoke'em shirt on the YouTube channel. 
How do I get that? Well, it's easy. You go to PacificCustomCalls.com. They just got a fresh batch up yesterday, and they're not going to last very long. So check them out, PacificCustomCalls.com, and uh, tell them the Big Honker Podcast people sent you. We're also brought to you by Shin Gear Waiters, the best waiters that are on the market right now. They're so comfortable. I mean, it's like you're walking on clouds. It really is. I didn't get to wear them a whole lot. I only got to wear them a couple times, as a matter of fact. But the times that I did, I did not want to. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I didn't want to come out of them. I, I I could easily see myself dry land hunting in, a, in an A-frame with shin gears on. I mean, they're that comfortable. You don't know that they're on you. The boots are incredible. The fabric uh, around your your torso and your legs are impeccable. They're tough. They're resistant, and they come with a with a guarantee that they're going to stand behind their product for as long as you stand in them. So if you spring a leak, you call the people over at Shin Gear, and they'll get you taken care of in a reasonable amount of time. It's not like other companies where you have to order two pair of waders just to have one. You send them to them, they fix them in a, in a short amount of time, they send them right back to you, you're ready to rock. I haven't had one person tell me that they – and everybody we're a sponsor from, people give us feedback on them. Right. I haven't had one person give feedback yet that they had problems with the waders. Not no. one person. And no. We've been, they've been sponsored for six months. It's the best – you get what you pay for in this country. We ought to know right. that by now. If you get on Amazon and you buy something and it's cheap, usually you're getting a cheap product. If you buy something and you pay for good quality service and it costs a little bit more, you're getting what you're paying for with Shin Gear. It's exactly what you get. Good quality product with great customer service. That's ShinGear.com. We're also brought to you by Dirty Duck Coffee. It's the way I start my morning every day out here at the Big Honker Lodge. If your coffee sucks, it's not the duck. The Missouri Boat Ride Blend, the best that there is. Ever since I've had COVID coffee, has kind of had this bitter, weird taste to it. The Missouri Boat Ride, I do not get that. Little hints of sugar, and I'm out the door. Thermos is ready to rock and roll. Incredible people over there at Dirty Duck Coffee. They're always trying to find a new blend that works for everybody. But I'm telling you, if you get yourself the Missouri Boat Ride Blend, you will not be disappointed. They're going to uh, hunting shows right now. I saw, I think they're at uh, the Houston, Houston Safari Club. Houston Safari Club. So if you're, if you're in the Houston area, uh, go check them out. I'm sure they'd be delighted to shake your hand and sell you a nice bag of premium roast coffee. It's delicious. Dirty Duck Coffee. You won't be disappointed. Also, we're brought to you by Lucky Duck, maker of the best A-frame that is on the market, the Lucky Duck 2x4 Blind. It fits four grown men as advertised. It's tough. It's durable. Uh, take your hide wherever you go. Uh, they also make waterproof spinners that are the best. And I tell you, another product that we just got turned on to is their goose flapper. We had uh, a very tough second half of our season, but actually the Lucky Duck goose flapper convinced some wary speckle bellies and honkers and some snow geese to just give it up on a dime. If you're running into that problem, maybe your geese are getting a little wary of the flag, put that goose flapper out. It does make a big difference. Um, it's remote operated. You can uh, you can change the wing cadence just off a touch of a button. You can turn it completely off. You can turn it on. Uh, they're easy to move around. So one morning we had them on the wrong side. Geese were finishing uh, where we didn't want them to. Picked them up, moved them. No problem at all. That is over at LuckyDuck.com. And I'm telling you, the more more tools you have in your tool chest, better off you'll be. LuckyDuck.com. Uh, also, we're brought to you by the boys at the Looking Glass Duck Club podcast, Mr. Logan Pyatt and Rebel Heron. Great guys. Uh, if you subscribe to their Patreon account, you can get full access to all the debauchery that they have going on over there. Uh, the bourbon review is still free to everybody, but if you want to hear 
uh, the nitty gritty and the good stuff. You got to pay a little bit. Go to their Patreon site, uh, pay your monthly subscription, and away you go. I think you can even spend up to 20 bucks if you want to. You can get the gold elite status. Uh, but they're great guys. They have a hell of a podcast. It's fun to watch them grow um, as podcast hosts. So we hope that you would tune in the Looking Glass Duck Club podcast. Also, we're brought to you by Gundog Outdoors. Take care of your four-legged critter. The quick-release system ensures that that dog is where you want it to be, and it does not take a step forward until you're ready for it to. Um, I, tell you, I, I use it every single morning. Hook it onto Lou. It's easy to use. Pull the chain, and then there he goes um, when I, whenever I'm ready to release him. It's got anchors and different hookups to where if you're hunting out of a boat or a pit blind or whatever you got, you can always set up your quick release system. Works everywhere. Also, they've got the field trauma kit, which I think every hunting bag needs, every pickup truck needs. Um, stop bleeding, stay warm, matches. I mean, it's got it all. Um, Alex Langbell has taken his career as a first responder, and he has put it all in a little bag for you. So if something bad happens, either to hunting buddy, your dog, you're ready to go. So check them out at Gundog Outdoors and at least get the field trauma kit because you need it. Also, we're brought to you by Steak Plains Meats. If you've seen the price of hamburger meat at the store, you would know why so many people are starting to buy bulk. They're getting these whole, uh, these whole steers. They're getting these whole beefs delivered. Um, if you've got the freezer space, it's definitely worth doing. Uh, hamburger meat's getting ridiculous. All the meat is getting ridiculous right now. But if you can, if you've got the storage, I would say everybody needs to stock up, buy in bulk. You can go to Steak Plains Meats down there in Crosbyton, Texas, um, and they will deliver to you. They do. They do custom order steaks. They do it all. It's just a nice old fashioned meat market, and that's what you need. And I'm telling you, we just got it. We just got a whole beef here delivered at the lodge the other day. It'll get you. It's going to get us through the summertime. We got three families. We'll take turns. Well, not take turns. We'll just get whatever we need to get out of it. Hamburger meat. Yesterday, I checked on price of hamburger meat. Almost seven dollars a pound. Ridiculous. Yeah, I mean that's what a steak was not long ago. Yeah. And so you you know if if you're on if you're on a budget you know take save a month's worth of money go get your stuff and save that meat because meat's going to be in high demand if you're buying it off grocery stores all the time. There's plenty of cattle in Texas. Buy it local. Go to a local meat place like Steak Plains Meats. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. If you're wanting dates for this coming waterfowl season, uh, you better get on the horn within the next couple of weeks because number one, we sell out most of our dates the year before. And what dates we do have left, uh, they're going pretty quick. I've got right now the week before Christmas and the week between Christmas and New Year's, I still have some dates open. If you want any of that, you better look, call me pretty fast. November dates are going real quick. we got an extra week of season we're going to get probably the November 5th week, so I have some of them dates still open. But if you want dates and you want on our calendar, you need to let me know pretty damn fast. And, yes, I do answer my phone. Had someone ask me that again today. It's really Jeff. Yeah. Is this really you, Jeff? Yes. Uh, nobody else is going to answer the phone around here. I don't even know how to answer it. <laughs> too fancy anyways call me or send an email goose at west w-e-s-t-e-x.net or jstanfield68 on instagram thank you so much god bless y'all ladies and gentlemen this episode of the podcast we are joined by the emu jim kern former texas rangers pitcher he's got a new book out it's called uh tales from the texas rangers and uh it's just some crazy stories from the 70s and 80s baseball team uh, that he was a part of. Very accomplished major league pitcher, and it is a pleasure to talk to him. Give it up for him. Here he is, Jim Kern. 
All right, three, two, one. Boom, and welcome to the Big Honker Podcast brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. I'm Jeff Stanfield with Andy, who's not so famous on this one. <laughs> not today. Not today. And with us today, an old friend of mine, ex-Major League Baseball player. He's an outfitter. He does the best Amazon fishing if you want to go. Mr. Jim Kern. Jim, how are you doing, sir? Good, good, good. How long has it been? I met you 28 years ago. At the Lone Star Hunting Show in Dallas, Texas. I met you and Steve Barber the same day. That's when you had hair and it was all dark. Yes. <laughs> I looked Italian then. Yeah. And I looked like an old Italian. <laughs> That's exactly right. 28 years ago. Probably you don't look much different. Your, your hair's a little wider. Well, yeah, there's, there's a lot less in the back, too, you know. You doing the poof over? Uh, well, I haven't been doing the poof over. Actually, I really don't care if people that's, don't like it. Such is life. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm the same kiss my ass attitude about everything. Now, you've got a book out. Just You just released a book. It's on Amazon. It's called The 70s and 80s Texas Rangers. Tales of the Texas Rangers, Rangers yes. Of the 1970s and 80s. Now, I've heard a lot of these stories because I've known you for a long time. I've spent a lot of time around you. But... There's a lot of news stories I hadn't heard in that book. I read last night. This is how good this book is. I got this book last night. I tried to order it in Mexico, and I couldn't get my Amazon to work when I was in Mexico. So Jim gave me a book last night. I read 320, what's it, 400 pages long? Yeah, about 396, yeah. I read 320 pages last night, and about 11.15, I said, I got to go to bed. But it is a good book. It's lots of story. If you are a out, if you like sports and you're a sporting fan of any time, you are around a lot of amazing people. How many Hall of Fame pitchers, how many Hall of Fame baseball players were you teammates with at one time or another? Oh, my. Started teams, uh, Gaylord Perry, Fergie Jenkins, Tom Seaver, Johnny Bench, Carlton Fisk, Steve Carlton, Mike Schmidt, just just to name a few. Did you play with, you played with Nolan? I, I played against Nolan, never okay. played with Nolan. Okay, but you were around Nolan because of the Texas Rangers. Yeah, he was with the Angels when I was with the Indians and the Astros when I was with Cincinnati, so played against Nolan. From reading the book, Gaylord Perry was quite the horse's ass, wasn't he? Well, G- Gaylord really, he was, he's from North Carolina. He was very opinionated. Uh, one of the strongest men you would ever meet. He was farm boy strong. He didn't have the definition of a Don Baylor or a Dave Parker. But, you know, if he lifted weights, it was in the form of a 70-pound bale of hay or a 100-pound sack of grit or such, grist. He was just different type of strong. But things were going to be done Gaylord's way. And uh, greatest guy on the earth. It's just when you greeted him and said hello it was going to hurt either your hand or your back or something he just he was a prankster uh big time strong and very aggressive but one of my best friends in baseball now that kind of strength that was typical back in those days like you, you didn't see the workout warrior like you see today so much back then right yeah and especially with pitchers it was long and lean right. rather than bulked up uh you know when I played, I was 6'5 and some change and weighed about 185 pounds. My old joke is if I turned sideways, the only shadow on the ground was a pair of lips. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was that type of, of what made you good and what made you strong was the durability. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fergie Jenkins, another good friend, 
had 30 complete games one year, 29 complete games the next year out of maybe 40 starts, went out there every fourth day and threw a complete game. Mm -hmm. And now if they throw six innings, they're looking toward the bullpen. It was just a whole different philosophy. Now, Gaylord was not someone that wanted to be, you wanted to be around him if you were hurt. Now, he, you tell a story about <laughs> you on the training table as a rookie. Go ahead. Well, there's several. I mean, one of my stories is I was in getting a rub on my shoulder a day after I pitched, and he came in, what the hell are you doing, rookie? Get off the training table. And I laughed at him, and he laid across me and dug his thumb into my rotor cuff up to about his elbow. And for 30 seconds, he just inflicted pain. But you never went back in the training room. <laughs> I mean, he got his point across real quick. I remember Charlie Pride, who was part owner of the Rangers, and Charlie would come to spring training and hit a foul ball uh, while he was hitting off his ankle. And the ankle was all swollen up, and they x-rayed it. Nothing was wrong. So they put him on a training table with ice, and Gaylord slithered in on his stomach behind Charlie and then reached up and grabbed it and squeezed it until Charlie was crying. I mean, this this was just Gaylord's idea of fun. <laughs> just a, a sadistic <laughs> oh, idea yeah. of fun. But, but, a, but a great guy. I mean, just a whole different world. It, it was country boy humor. Right. And he was famous for throwing a spitball, right? Well, he was supposedly famous for throwing a spitball. He didn't call it a spitball. He called it his Cuban forkball. Uh, and the thing was, if he did throw it, uh, he threw it very little. But he had it in everybody's mind that he was going to throw it, and it really screwed up hitters' heads. Uh, they weren't on their game. They weren't concentrating. They were going to worry about throwing this ball that broke down very quickly, very late in front of the plate. So his idea wasn't get you to swing and miss. It was to hit a ground ball instead of a line drive. Was, he, was that the same pitch that Mike Scott threw with the, with the Astros? Well, supposedly now. Yeah, it's all supposedly, you know. The, the idea, the, the physics behind a wet one is with a fastball, with a dry ball, your fingers come off the ball first, your thumb lasts, so it's got a back spin. With, with a wet one, you lubricate your index and, and middle finger, and when you throw it, your fingers come off first. And you, I'm sorry. Yeah, your fingers come off first and your thumb last. So you've got a forward roll to it. So when the ball gets in front of the plate, it sinks a little bit. Uh, much like a curveball, but not that tighter rotation. And it looks just like a fastball. Now, when you played baseball, baseball was the king of the hill. That was the, it was the big sport. And, and, and I've said this before on this podcast. I'm not a big baseball fan now because it, it, it bores me now compared to what it used to be like. But baseball's a great radio game. Well, it, it, it is. The problem with baseball is in the 60s, they started coming up with this 100-pitch rule to try to protect the young kids from being overused. And the problem with the 100-pitch rule is that's usually about the sixth, seventh inning you've gone through 100 pitches. So they've taught the young kids to look in the bullpen for a reliever after about six, seven innings, where in our time frame, you had guys like Fergie Jenkins, Gaylord Perry, Nolan Ryan, 
the book on them that you would talk before the game is get them in the first seven innings. Because if you don't get them in the first seven innings, they tighten the screws in the last two innings. They're going to get that complete game and get you out. Now everybody's looking toward the bullpen. We used to carry on the teams five starters, five relievers. Now they're carrying five starters, seven relievers, which really wreaks havoc with the game because those extra two players you can't have on the bench, so you can't pinch hit for anybody. You can't pinch run for anybody because you don't have the personnel because they're all sitting in the bullpen. But this 100-pitch rule years and years ago is what has really changed the game. I've, we had games with Fergie. If, if Fergie was pitching against Gaylord – that, that game would last an hour and a half. We'd be in the clubhouse drinking a beer. <laughs> now, a three, three-and-a-half-hour game is a norm. And that, I really think, is what's killing the game is it's just so long. Yeah. The manager goes out and changes pitchers two, three times. Just that philosophy, 100-pitch rule, has really wreaked havoc with the game. So, when so you- is this his spitball? I, I tried to pull up a YouTube video right there. I think we can see it. So is he just psychic? I don't know if he's going to throw it here, but is he just psychic because he's kind of getting sweat off of his... Well, he's he's psyching. He would go through this whole thing. You'd see the cap, uh-huh. the the hair, everything, and what Gaylord was doing was playing games with you, make you think he was going to throw it. See, here he is working again. Uh-huh. And he's just kind of getting He's just kind of getting in that in that batter's mindset. Oh, yeah. Kinda... Yeah, he's just playing with him. You know, here... I don't think you can see the umpire checking, but the umpires would come out and check him because the hitters would always complain about Gaylord loading them up. So the umpires would come out and check him. Gaylord got to the point where they did this so much that he'd staple a little note inside of the neck. (laughs) He'd staple another little note inside of his belt. And the note said, nope, not here. here (laughs) But what what was it? They would say that he had some lubrication of something. Okay, see, again, he's playing with him. This, right, this and that's probably not even his spitball. No, no, it's, uh, he, and again, if he threw it, mm-hmm. that's like saying if Morgana came out in the field and gave the players a kiss. These people today have no clue who Morgana is. So that he would take note, they would check his body for, for some lubricant, and he'd be like, nope, not here. Right, they check the bill of his cap <laughs> up in the rim of his cap inside of his shirt, mm-hmm. inside of his belt here where you might rub your hand. Right. And, uh, yeah, he'd have little notes there. Did he See, ever get caught? <coughs> Not that I know of. I can't ever think of Gaylord ever getting thrown out of a game for throwing a wet one. No, the Necros did, though, right? They threw the – they had the foul. They would scratch up the – scuff it up, right? Uh, Jim did. Um, Jim Perry did, and um, – uh, not Joe, but his brother did. Field Negro. Yeah, you, you would take and you would take a file or sandpaper and scuff up one little corner of the ball, and then you'd hold the, the scuff away from the way you wanted the ball to break, and it would actually run when it got in front of the plate. And catchers were as much as a fault as pitchers were. I knew a couple catchers, won't mention any name, <laughs> that had a little piece of grinding disc. Oh, wow. Glued to the edge of their shin guards. Uh-huh. And what they do is catch a ball, and then, twist it, and throw it back. And you had it scuffed. And you see umpires now, any foul ball, the ball's gone. Right. New ball. Because if you get a little bit of dirt in the seams, 
you can make the ball run. So is that why you see pitchers constantly working that ball? No, usually you're working the ball because the balls used to be horsehide, mm-hmm. which had a rougher leather than the cowhide does. Now they're all cowhide, and what you're trying to do is rub it up so that it doesn't feel like a cue ball. Right. If you don't rub up a cowhide ball, it feels like a cue ball. I mean, there's nothing to hang slick. on to, and so it slips in your hand. Right. You either put your fingers on a seam, and if you don't, it slips in your hand. It'll slip off your thumb, so you're rubbing it to get some type of texture mm-hmm. to, to the outside of the ball so you can hang on to it easier. Now, the average person is not throwing the ball 95 miles an hour like you guys can. And that and the ball movement and stuff at 95 miles an hour, you don't get that ball to do a lot of things that the guy who's throwing 60 can't get it to do. When, well, no, actually, the guy that throws 60 can get it to do stuff easier. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, because you, you've got more time for the ball to do stuff. Uh, back, you got to remember back in our time frame in the 70s, uh, there was two guns. There was a jugs gun, which was a fast gun, and then there was another gun. I don't remember what the name is. And the way they were faster guns than others is one would take uh, the speed of the ball just before it got to the plate, which is the slowest it's going to be. A jugs gun registered the speed of the ball halfway to the hitter. And so in our time frame, your average fastball was 88, 90 mile an hour. Eckersley threw 92, 93 and could bring it. Uh, Nolan, 198. I could throw consistently in the upper 90s. Three all-star games I played in, we rattled the guns at 100. But now, with the new guns, they get the speed of the ball once it leaves your fingers, which is the fastest. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at three, four mile an hour difference there. So now everybody's throwing in the upper 90s, when in our time frame, that same guy would have been throwing in the low 90s on a jugs gun. And it's all based off of where they take that that mile per hour. Yep, where, where they take the speed of the pitch from. Nolan registered throwing through a speed trap through 102 mile an hour adjusted to the new guns would be 108. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. What Randy Johnson, he'd throw the ball that hard, right? <laughs> yeah, Randy could throw the ball in the upper 90s. The thing is, is Randy was six foot ten. Yeah. His arms, I mean, I've, I've got long arms. I wear a, a, a 17 and a half neck, 38 sleeve. Randy had a 42-inch sleeve on his shirt. So you have the length of the lever arm, how fast you can accelerate through the length of the lever arm. The longer that lever arm is like an atlatl, mm-hmm. the faster you're going to be able to throw. And he threw funky. He threw a low three-quarter, so you see the ball coming from behind his shoulder. A big thing is how well a hitter can hit a ball is how quick they pick the ball up. Right. And when you got the ball coming out of your shoulder... You don't pick it up until it's halfway to you. So your time frame is reduced to half. Try and decide what the ball is in the strike zone, curveball, changeup, fastball, and then trying to hit it. So that funky motion, Dennis Eckersley, the same thing, threw a low three-quarters. So the ball came out of your shoulder. You didn't pick the ball up right away. That, that has a big difference in it. Now let me ask you this. How much of that can you teach and how much of that is just, that's just the way Randy threw the ball? Well, like you look at kids today and like, you know, 
we can use like Aaron Rodgers. Like you would never teach a kid to throw the football like Aaron Rodgers because he never sets his feet. Like you would probably never teach a pitcher to throw a ball like Randy Johnson where he's kind of got this this three-quarter arm motion. You really can't change somebody's motion with much extreme once they're about 15, 16 because you, you have – the integration of how the muscles relate to each other as you throw. When right. you take somebody's sidearm and try to get them to throw straight over the top, you'll probably generate arm problems because those muscles haven't developed right. that way uh, in those vectors to be able to pitch that way. So what you do, I do work with kids, but I like the young kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, if I get a teenager that mouths off to me, I'm going to strangle him. So I'm, <laughs> I wouldn't be a good coach for that age group. The young kids, you teach them mechanics, right. how to bring the, the knee up, how to rotate, get your arm up on top. You teach good mechanics when they're young. Then you can do stuff when they get older. When, when you get somebody like Randy Johnson, you say, that's not the way to throw. Right. You aren't going to change him. Because I just think of like – if. Like if a high school coach were to get Randy Johnson today, how much they would fuck him up, you know? Like by trying, like nope, that's not how you do it. Like you've got to, you've got to do this, and then it's it's this over the top rather than I would be afraid. Like a high school coach would do serious damage to a kid like Randy Johnson. And see, those are the poor coaches that only know how to do things one way, and that's right. their way. A good coach takes what they've got and works with it. Mm-hmm. You know. I never worked much on – I worked a lot on my fielding, which really sucked. I mean, ground ball back at me, I'd catch it, but usually in the chest and the legs someplace, <laughs> you know. And like Fergie Jenkins, you could shoot a 30-out six at him. He's going to catch a bullet before it gets to him <laughs> and stuff it over his back. Yeah. It, it's just he had a lot more coordination than I did. And so the same thing there is Mickey Rivers says, you don't work on your strengths. You can't improve something that's not there. <laughs> Very good point, you know. I mean, very good point. That's, that's exactly right. how You're not going to make a kid. You can't take it. This is my thing towards Little League dads. I had three boys that played baseball. Two of them were really good catchers. One of them was a really good Little League pitcher. But he wasn't ever going to throw the ball 100 miles an hour. He just didn't throw balls. He threw strikes. And if you're pitching Little League and you get the ball over the plate and you don't ever walk nobody, you're going to be a pretty good little Little League pitcher probably. And he could throw decent. But you wasn't going to ever make – you can't take a kid and make him throw hard if he can't do it. No, yeah, I mean, it's just like a runner. You've got slow twitch muscles or you've got fast twitch yes. muscles. Uh, there's no in-between. Uh, what you do is you, you try to work with what you've got. Back in our time frame – the sinker slider pitchers were prevalent. Uh, Randy Jones, Mike Cuellar, uh, Pat Dobson, Jackie Brown. That would we used to t- call it tricking him. He, he's he's a tricky left-hander because he's going to off-speed you, throw the ball in and out, make it do different things. They can teach you all that. They can teach you how to throw a curve. They can teach you how to throw a slider. They can't teach you how to throw a good fastball. Right. So the scouts. Looking at baseline, what we've got to work with, they want the hard throwers because they figure they can teach them everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people like Fergie Jenkins and Harvey Haddix, who could sit a glove on a chair next to the plate and hit it nine out of ten times. I mean, I had no chance of doing that. <laughs> uh, I, I tell everybody I got credit for a no-hitter when I didn't hit anybody. <laughs> you know, that's... Tell, the, tell the story about... 
you're not being tired in rookie ball when you threw the ball? Well, it was. I was an A ball. I was 19, uh, 1968 in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Rock Hill Spinners. It's one of these. If you ever watch Bull Durham, it's that ballpark. It's got a chicken wire behind the screen, you know. And and uh, I'm out there. And Pinky May was our manager. Pinch Pinky was in his early 60s. His son Milt May uh, caught for the Pirates and. Pinky played third base for the Pirates in the 50s. And Pinky was about 5'10", and here I am, 6'5". And he always wore this heavy coat, even in South Carolina in the summer, and would have hands in the pocket. We always figured that's so he wouldn't strangle you when he came out to the mound, you know, (laughs) trying to keep his hands busy. And I've got a good moving fastball at night. It's moving to left field and right field and dead center, you know. And Pinky comes out in the third inning. We're down about four nothing. And Pinky says to me, he says, Emu, I got to take you out. And I looked at him. I said, but Pinky, I'm not tired. <laughs> and he spit a wad of tobacco on the gown, looked at me, and he says, yeah, but the goddamned outfielders are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been 45 years. I still haven't got a comeback for that one. <laughs> Who's better, Pudge Rodriguez or Johnny Bench? <laughs> You know, I never was able to throw to Pudge Rodriguez. Uh, bench, I threw to Fisk, Sunberg, uh, Bench, and uh, Bench was just head and shoulders of all of them behind the plate because even Fisk uh, and Sunberg, although they were extremely good catchers, if they called a breaking pitch outside and you crossed them up and threw a fastball up and in, they were jerked to get it. You could tell they'd been set up. Bench, you couldn't. He just would catch that ball like he was expecting it. Uh, JB was just so clean. Good arm to second. Pudge probably had a little better arm to second. Pudge probably had a better arm than 90% of the pitchers. Uh, and Bench was a better hitter. Uh, Pudge wasn't wasn't a bad hitter by any stretch of the imagination, but Bench could take that outside pitch and instead of trying to rake it to left field and hit a fly ball to center field, he'd drive that outside to pitch to right center field. Bench didn't have any weaknesses. Usually you can identify, you can beat somebody inside, you can get them fish for a breaking ball down and away. Bench simply did not have any weak spots. So Pudge's arm was that good? Yeah, it was a little better than that. So you think he could have pitched probably? Yeah, a matter of, a matter of fact, uh, in in my book I talk about it. Tom Grieve talks about who's general manager uh, for the Rangers at that time when they signed Pudge. Uh, Pudge was a 15 year old kid when they first saw him, and uh, he was an also ran. And they went down to look at some other kids, and their people in uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, we're showing them other kids, and they were watching Pudge throw to second. And they went to the other people says, you better sign this little fat kid <laughs> if you want to sign anybody else. I mean, he was that good at 15. He started out as a pitcher when he was young. His father moved him to catcher because he was afraid he was going to hurt the kids he threw so hard. Wow. Um, he was an amazing. I, I grew up that that era of the Rangers, Juan Gonzalez, Ruben Sierra, Nolan Ryan, Pudge Rodriguez. And Pudge, you could just when he first came out, everybody talked about him. It was a big; it wasn't a big secret they was going to bring him up. And when he Gino got hurt, 
Gino, Gino got hurt. And the interesting thing was in spring training, when Pudge was in spring training, Gino said, you know, we better not get hurt because we can't let him look at this kid. Gino got hurt. They brought up the kid. Never, never left. Yeah, game over. Yeah, he was he was an amazing. And Gino had talked to me about that up here a few times. We talked about Pudge, but he could boy he could hum a ball. But I always wondered about him as a pitcher because he could throw the ball to second base as fast as a pitcher could throw it to him to home plate. It seemed like. Yeah, he, he on the guns he was throwing ninety to second base. That's 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 an amazing. He was just I didn't Johnny Bench was you know I was a little kid when Johnny Bench was famous and I didn't know much about Johnny Bench like I did Pudge. But it's hard to believe that anybody could be any better than Pudge. That's the, why I asked. The thing that made uh, both Fisk and Bench have an edge on Pudge is Pudge might have been 5'11", 6 foot. Bench and Fisk were 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, big men. Just big, bigger men. I mean, they'd stand in front of the plate when a guy coming around third, they wouldn't stand on the plate. They would stand three, four feet up the line. You got to run through my ass to be able to get to home plate. If I have the ball or not, right? you know, and, and that size makes a huge difference. Should, should Pete Rose be in the hall of fame? As far as 4,500 hits, hell yes. As far as, Flaunting baseball rules. I mean, when he admitted to gambling on games, that's death. Because if you're going to gamble, then it's only logical that you bet against your team. And so, consequently, as manager, Pete Rose will be inducted into the Hall of Fame the day after he dies. You think so? Yes, yes. They're they're not going to give him the honor while he's living and doing it. I think Pete Rose should be in the Hall of Fame, and and and, and I know where you're coming from. If you bet if he bet against himself, then I have a big problem with it. It's never been proven they bet against himself. But though. but he has admitted betting. Yes, yes. And so you've got to take that one step further. Yes, I mean there's only two ways to do it: for or against. Yeah. Um, I think Kurt Schilling should be in the in the Hall of Fame. I think he's there because of politics, and I think that's a bunch of bullshit. Well, he is definitely there because of politics. Uh, not not there, shall we say? Yeah. To me, Kurt is borderline. I mean, he's not a first ballot type of Hall of Famer. Uh, Bonds and Clemens, when Clemens has got seven Cy Young Awards, Bonds has got two and a half million home runs. I mean, yes, uh, but again, the PED stuff, it's, it, it's, really, it, it's really tough because in any other walk of life, you do whatever you can do to enhance your profession you get a master's and a doctorate to be able to be the best you can in that field the peds you took these to be the best you could be really tough here what's legal you're telling me you don't think ty cobb and babe ruth would have taken peds if they were available they took whatever was available yeah hot dogs and beer and 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 women yeah (laughs) yeah pussy will make you do a lot of things yeah Good and bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so, yeah, I agree with you. And, and, and you're hitting a round ball with a round bat. Yeah. You still, there's a lot of guys on PED. I'm going to tell you what, you can take a wrestler that's on PEDs and steroids, and he can't hit a fucking home run. And Barry Bonds hit 800 of them or whatever he hit. Yeah, seven, seven, 775 or something absurd. Uh, the thing about Barry, one problem I had with Barry wasn't so much a PEDs. It was all the armor he wore on his upper arm and his forearm. Derek Dickerson of baseball. Which allows you to cheat 
into the plate. And if you get hit there, no biggie. And so that's you take that away from the inside half the plate, away from the pitcher. The other thing I've read here lately is that was designed so he couldn't roll his arm. His arm was not allowed to roll over and dissipate torque. So you hit the ball, and that kept the— Carries through. Carries through, which generated a lot more power. Now that, mechanically— I mean, that's— that is mechanically that's something to look at if that is really true right because now it gave him an unfair advantage through mechanics it fixes a flaw that he yeah. had in his mechanics we, what uh, about uh now we're seeing uh guys that have face guards well i mean and that's also i mean you're kind of you're taking i don't you're, blame him for that well no, no no but you're making that batter feel more comfortable on the inside stuff well, you hit him once in the face mask, and that's it's going to get rid of that comfort factor. But all of us pitchers, yes, we did intentionally hit people occasionally. We didn't aim at their head. They, nobody had any respect for a headhunter as far as a pitcher. Uh, to come up and in uh, was okay to get him off the plate. But I don't have any problem with the face mask. I mean, personally, I thought they ought to dig a bunker behind the mound so when they hit a damn line drive back, you had a place to dive. <laughs> so, yeah. so Don Baylor owes you a couple ass whoopings, don't he? Uh, yeah, only, probably only about 11. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, we talked about the – I lost my damn train of thought. I was going to ask you something about – That's what happens that. when you get old, no you know? Shit. Oh, I, I know what it was. I was. Me and you were at a hunting show in Houston a long, long time ago. And the Giants were playing the Astros. And you said, hey, do you want some tickets to go see Barry Bonds play? And so me and Tony and somebody else went with me to the game. We went to the game. And I said, do you want to go? You said, I have been in person 3,785 games. I am not going to go to another baseball game and watch a baseball game. Well, it's it's pretty much like you saying somebody, you want to go watch them call ducks? No. Right. Uh, don't think so. No. And Barry Bonds hit a home run. It was one nothing. Most boring baseball game I've ever been to in my life. But the Astrodome was comfortable because it was the first time I'd been to an indoor baseball game. Well, and that's one thing interesting about baseball. The powers that be now think a 9-8 to game is more interesting than a 3-2 to game. The problem you have, a 9-8 to game is going to be three and a half hours. Right. People get bored. A 3 excuse me, a 3-2 to game is going to be a two-hour game. And so, you know, to me, who drew the fans? Yeah, Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams did. But Nolan Ryan pitched. How many more fans came to see him? Bob Gibson, Fergie Jenkins, Gaylord Perry. They came to see them dominate. Yeah, I went and watched. I went to a game in Arlington when Nolan Ryan pitched Randy Johnson. I think the final game was the score was one to nothing. Yep. And there was about 30 strikeouts in the game. But we went to that game to watch Nolan Ryan play against Randy Johnson. Yeah. And the game was exactly what we wanted to see. And then one time I took Andy out of school and we went and seen uh, maybe Kevin Brown pitch against Jack McDowell or Randy Johnson or somewhere. And it was a one to nothing game, too, in the same type of deal. I think Juan Gonzalez had a home run, but it was because it was going to be a really good pitcher's game. And I wanted to see it. But I went to watch Randy Johnson pitch two or three times because there was always that chance to be a no-hitter. Yeah, that's correct. And people went to see Nolan big time like that. Tony I'm, Tony was at Nolan's sixth no-hitter. I think the most interesting thing is Nolan had seven no-hitters, but he had 21 one-hitters. Yeah. Wow. 21 times he missed that by one hit, mm-hmm. you know. But to watch people uh, – and, again, one of my favorite people is, is Fergie Jenkins as far as watching him pitch – 
with Gaylord Perry and Nolan Ryan and Randy Johnson, I mean, it was one-on-one, mano-a-mano, here we go. With Fergie, he pitched, and the people would have the most comfortable 0-for-4 they ever had in their <laughs> life. They'd open the paper the next day and go, 0-for-4, I'm, I'm sure I got a hit last night. <laughs> you know, Fergie just got your ass out. I mean, it was real simple. I remember one year with Texas, he gave up 38 home runs one season. 31 of them were single shots. Solo shots. With nobody on base, he was coming at you. A solo home run does not hurt you. Walking two guys and giving up a dinger is going to kill you. <laughs> yes, it will. So what, do you, what, what are your feelings on how we could shorten the game up a little bit? I mean, number one, it goes. they start spring training here in a couple weeks. Well, they're, on, they? they're on strike. Oh, they are on are strike? Is, are they officially on strike right now? Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean... I don't expect to see baseball until June or July. Maybe that's the answer because it goes from March to mid-October. That's a long time to keep somebody's attention span. Like days of our lives is about, you know, that's, but that's just a long time. And then you get to the dog days of summer and it's too hot to go to the ball games. And it's just, I think, I think the big thing right now is through expansion, you have created a lot more teams than there were 20, 25 years right. ago. You've reduced the minor leagues 60%, the number of people coming up. So what you've got is a scenario where you don't have enough quality pitching. Mm-hmm. You don't have enough quality catching. Your seventh, eighth, ninth guy in the bullpen should be in double A. Right. And so you don't have that quality. You've got enough hitting to go around, and the fielding is pretty good. But if, if you really want to make the game more interesting, you need to contract, get rid of half a dozen teams, mm-hmm. which they aren't going to do because of the dollar factor. Right. They're talking about expansion, which dilutes the pool even more. Right. Uh, but, no, there there is going to be no way to, to speed up the game because, again, of this 100-pitch rule, your pitchers are not used to pitching a lot of innings, and so consequently, you're going to make two, three, four pitching changes. Every time you do that, you ate 15 minutes. Right. You know, by the time you bring him in, by the time you get him out, everything else. And TV dictates everything. Sure. You know, you got commercials here, you got commercial breaks there, and, and so TV is dictating all the. The, the dollars because I just look right now football is the sport in America and when you look at football about the time people start losing interest playoff implications are on the line and then the season's wrapping up and then the playoffs get started with baseball you people as me as a casual viewer I watch April a little bit in May and then when the playoff hunt starts the, late September mid-September late September is when football, as a casual watcher Football has been saved by fantasy football. I think everybody plays fantasy football, and I by, think that, by betting, correct? That, yeah. that, that is saved. That is saved football. If it wasn't for fantasy football, all this the BLM, Black Lives Matter, and all the social injustices and shit, they would have lost. I think half their people had, and they lost a lot of people anyways. But I think that fantasy football kept people in. You know, I don't give a crap about all that other crap. I don't want to hear you talk about how hard it is. I grew up poor, so you ain't gonna you ain't not gonna make me feel bad for you. 
but I think people got sick of that shit. But I think fantasy football saved that. Baseball is a freaking marathon. Baseball's a marathon, but it always has been 162 games. The interesting thing about baseball is keeping your body together for 162 consecutive games. Mm-hmm. That's that's the one thing that makes baseball different than anything else. Football plays once a week. Mm-hmm. Basketball maybe three times a week. Baseball is every day. And so you look at the athleticism of going out there every day and playing nine innings. Mm-hmm. Somebody like Fergie Jenkins, Gaylord, pitching every four days. I mean, and it's tough to pitch every four days. The day you pitch, the next day you're big time sore. My wife used to touch me on the back and laugh when I jumped because wherever you touch it, you're sore. The second day, you usually throw batting practice or on the side to loosen up. The third day you rest, the fourth day you're in there. Five-day rotation is much easier on the body than a four-day rotation. And you look at some of these guys back in the time frame of Bob Gibson, Fergie, Gaylord, Drysdale, they pitched occasionally on three-day rotations. And, so, and for going out there and trying to make it get it done – my, that is hard on the body. There, there's no doubt about that at all. I mean, it's a, it's it's hard on the guys. You work a lot more. You play a lot more games. So, and the guys that are playing in positions in the field, they're playing six days a week, play a game. Now, baseball also, and I've, I've said this so many times, radio is good for baseball. Man, I listen to so many baseball games driving down the road when I was a kid growing up. We'd go fishing. You'd have the radio on and stuff. And I think more, less people listen to the radio now, and I think that's hurt baseball, too. I think it has, too. And the thing about baseball and it's uh, how long it takes it is is the world now with the Internet is immediate gratification. Correct. Mm-hmm. And so a marathon isn't nearly as interesting to the, to, to the kids coming up and trying to get interested in the game. Uh, and, you know, there used to be baseball fields all over the place. Yep. You don't see them in town anymore. We have hell. We have hell. Knox City. When I when we first when when Andy was second grade here at Knox City, we had 140 kids in high school, and we had four little league baseball teams in just in town. When Zach was in that town, we was into two little league baseball teams. When Payne was at town in, at growing up, we had one little league baseball team. We had you know we have to pare down to 12 kids or nine kids or whatever it was, or 12 kids to play baseball, 14 at the most usually. But that's what we're down to is one team, and we're lucky to get one team now. Well, and, and you look you look at the guys in high school. You're trying to impress the girls in high school, okay? Yeah. Where's the immediate gratification? Football, Football. basketball, not baseball. Uh-uh. No, baseball. Both baseball is really hard. Baseball's an afterthought. It, ba- baseball's a rich kid sport now. Yeah, kind of, right? With yeah. summer league. It's all middle, middle, it's middle class kids. Like, you go to baseball. Like, we, we did some travel baseball with Zach and Payne. Well, it wasn't cheap to do it. You go to Brownwood and you go play tur- in a tournament for a weekend. Or you go to Dallas and play in a tournament for a weekend. You get hotels Friday, Saturday night, and you stay all. I mean, a poor kid's parents can't do that. No, no, and I think a lot of the travel baseball is more for the parents than Bingo. it is for the kids. Bingo. Yeah. I agree with you 100% on that. Kids shouldn't be playing 75 baseball games in the summer. And that's no. what I was going to ask you. And they about. shouldn't be playing one sport. No, that's that exactly right. I was going to ask you. Did you see in the um, the Super Bowl they had a stat of the was there, there's a hundred how many kids are, how many guys are on a pro football team? The I think it's fifty two man roster. Fifty two man roster, one hundred and four guys. I think ninety eight of them were multiple sport athletes in high school. Yeah, and probably three sports. 
I mean, well, not, they, not just football or baseball, probably football, basketball, base, or, you know, baseball, everything. track, you know, a lot of things. But it, but it showed the, the kids. It showed how many, and it was like 98 of them played. There was very few that just played just football. And, and travel baseball is relegates you to one sport. Yep. Right. So what, when did that craze start? Like, who, who thought of, like, okay, if I get my kid to just focus on this one particular, whether it's baseball or not, Number one, I would think the kid would get burned out faster because and baseball in, and injured faster. Yeah, you look at the kids. The the Tommy John surgery in 15, 16 year old kids has just skyrocketed, and that's got to be because of summer league baseball. You're never giving that arm a break. Well, and the other thing is the mechanics of throw the ball hard, right. throw the ball hard. It's a lot harder on the body than get people out mm-hmm. by tricking them. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, everybody thinks they're Bobby Witt's son. Everybody thinks their kid's going to be the next Bobby Witt's son. If, for people that don't know, Bobby Witt played with baseball for Jim. Or played, did you and Twitter play together? Either? No, no, Twitter was after I was. But, but Bobby uh, and, and Jim are friends. Me and Bobby are friends. Bobby's son was the number one player taking the draft, what, two years ago? Two years ago. And he plays for the Royals. I think he's a shortstop. But everybody thinks their kid's going to be that kid, and most of them are not. Well, that and the other example is Buster Posey. But you stop and look at the number of kids that play in the major leagues that play travel baseball, it is very insignificant. I mean, your better players, the majority of them now are coming out of the South American Latino countries because that's what they do. They don't sit there and play Nintendo eight hours a day. They're outside playing sports, and they're playing multiple sports. And so that's where your better athletes are coming from now. Well, I look at my my kid. He's seven, and he's two years ago. He started. He's just now old enough to play little league basketball. He, is that what you're calling that? Whatever. What is it? Little dribblers. I'm sorry. It's a horrible. Is what it um, is. <laughs> but little dribblers. That sounds like me in old age here. <laughs> but you look at him, who's never picked up a basketball out of boredom and gone out and shot hoops or any of that, and you look at them versus kids that that's their entertainment. The aggression factor, he doesn't have any aggression. He's not aggressive at all, and it's because it's you're like, God damn it, go after the fucking ball. But he's a kid that's kind of privileged. He hunts a lot. And the kid that was bored that went and shot hoops or threw a, a, a baseball with his brother because they had nothing else to do, I mean, that kid's going to blow my son away. So you giving every day up on Reese being a professional athlete already? No, 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 not absolutely not. But it's just we saw better, more natural athletes 50 years ago because that was your entertainment. If you wanted to be entertained after school, you'd go shoot basketballs or you'd throw the baseball. So he's we, not going to be we, in the NBA, though. We would play baseball all day long, right. six days a week. I mean, how many pitches you threw. Uh, you just built arm strength by limiting them to 100 pitches. You're not building the arm strength you need to be able to pitch nine innings. And it goes back so far to little kids that you've got no chance of, of ever changing it. You, you're you're older than me, but you're, you're, you're just a little bit younger than dad. When, how old are you? I'm older than dirt. I was born in the first half of the last century. <laughs> when were you born? 49. 49. So you're five years younger than dad was. But you grew up in that same generation. Guys could take an ass whooping then. And, and, you, and we did. Yeah. And, and, and when it was over, it was over. Yeah. It was the end of the world. It wasn't the end of the world. You wouldn't go shoot somebody and stuff. 
and, and kids played outside. I grew up playing outside, riding a bike, playing outside. You had you get scrapes and scabs. You did all the time. You didn't go home and mama didn't baby you and shit. They didn't run you to the emergency room every time something happened. It was just part of life growing up. We've lost that. And you went out looking to eat dirt. Yeah, I mean, that's right. <laughs> yeah. but but the kids, t- but but baseball was built for that generation of stuff. That's what it was for. The Sandlot movie, those kids played baseball and stuff. If you did a Sandlot movie today, the Disney classic, and you read it, all them kids will be inside playing fucking games. Mm-hmm. They don't go outside anymore, and that's what we've lost. And, and, and Andy's right about Reese. Reese is a great kid, but his interests are not to go out. When I was a little kid growing up, we had a football yard, a football field in the front yard. We had a basketball goal, and it was either, we were either playing football and if you didn't have enough for a whole team, you played Smear the Queer, which was the name where you one kid run the ball against everybody tried to tackle him. Yeah. Or you played basketball or baseball. And we went from one sport to another sport to another sport, and everybody did it. Kids today, you got to beg kids to come out and sign up. If you did, are we doing baseball sign-ups yet? Uh, yeah, Thursday. Thursday's baseball sign-ups. We'll have to beg enough kids to come sign up to play ball. Or they'll all play t-ball, and then they all parents don't want to jack with it. The parents are another big problem in our country, too. Parents don't want to sacrifice an hour or two hours a day to take their kid to practice. Or if they want to take them to practice, they drop them off and let the coach take care of them for two hours. And then bitch at the coat during, during right. game day. All the time. Yeah. That used to wear me out. Which I didn't take very many ass from parents because I was, you know, if you want to fucking coach, come over here and coach. They didn't want to coach. But – when you were a kid, you probably had the same little league coach the whole time. Yeah, yeah, we had the same little league coach. And the, the thing is, I was never a good athlete. When I was nine years old, I could throw the ball harder than 10-year-olds and 11-year-olds could. But I was always a poor athlete. I mean, when I was 14, I was 6'4 and weighed 158 pounds. God almighty. I mean, it's, I couldn't stuff a basketball until I was 22 when I had enough muscle mass to be able to control the body. <laughs> and so I was always the last kid picked for any team. Doesn't matter what we were doing, if we were making mud balls, I was the last guy picked to make a mud ball. You were the tall, smart kid. Hey, no. Well, tall. <laughs> you have a chemistry well, degree, so you're not dumb. Um, yeah, I've got a chemistry degree, but I can't spell it, so we, ha- we have problems, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, this book, with this book I wrote, I'm sure I have English teachers rolling over in their grave. You know, I failed spelling in seventh grade, flat up F. <laughs> um, you know, so <clears throat> chemistry was one thing I really enjoyed. Uh, English, you know, I don't speak Spanish. I speak a little bit of Spanish and a little bit of Portuguese for all the fishing we do in South America. But basically, I can get fed and order a beer. That's, that's about it in any language. And I can do a little bit better in English. <laughs> I'm looking this up. It says Tommy John surgery is performed in 50, 57% of all Tommy John surgeries are kids 15 to 19 years old. That's yep. crazy. Over half of all the Tommy John surgeries performed are on teenagers. The biggest problem with coaches, the majority of them have a very good heart in coaching, but they've got no idea about mechanics. Right. And they try to teach kids mechanics what they think is right or read on the Internet by some so-called expert, and you're just hurting things. Mechanics are very simple, but everything's got to be in sync. If you don't rotate enough uh, in your wind-up, you don't give your hand time to turn from facing down to facing up to bring your elbow through little things like this uh, that you can fine-tune kids jumping and not giving themselves time not following through and throwing only with their arms but the majority of of the young coaches 
very good heart, but don't have the mechanics. And they try right. to push this, throw harder, throw harder, throw harder, and the kids get all out of sync. Mm -hmm. The worst thing you can do is to rush. When you rush, you don't throw harder. You work harder, but you don't throw harder. Everything's got to be in sync and trying to get them to throw hard, which is the big thing now. If you don't throw 90, you ain't shit. Right. I mean, that's is destroying a lot of arms. The mentality of a pitcher, is that anything that can be taught, or is that something that's just born into that kid? You've got to have some fire to be able to pitch. Uh, you get your ass kicked today, you can't let it roll over in tomorrow and start doubting yourself. Yeah. Starting pitchers started once every four or five days, so <coughs> they were strong and had time to get their act together between starts. Relief pitchers, you've got to be a little bit off-center to be a good relief pitcher because you're down in the bullpen. You aren't part of the team. You're a spectator for <laughs> seven, eight innings. Right. We, I mean, you're down there eating nachos, drinking Cokes, you know. And then suddenly you're in a game. You've got to be able to throw the switch quickly. Mm -hmm. And you've got to be able to pitch consecutive days. Right. And you've got to have a forgiving arm. You've got to be able to get loose very quick. And you've got to have a Rottweiler attitude like, I died yesterday, but we're going to kill your ass today. And those are hard to come by. There's a lot of guys that just don't have the attitude to be a relief pitcher. That's what I was thinking about because, like, you know, with a, with a starting pitcher, you look at the rotation, I'm pitching here, I'm pitching Sunday and Wednesday. You know those are your days. Right. With a relief pitcher, drop of a hat. Hey, this situation, we need Emu. Get him, get him going. And yeah. it might happen again tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, can you see the, the manager calling down, get current up. Well, I, I didn't get eight hours sleep last <laughs> night. Get somebody else up. Right. You know, like, it's let's go. Yeah. Balls to the wall. What's the, how long would it take you? What's the least amount of, of time in the bullpen you could feel confident stepping onto the mound? It was probably the time y'all gave all the balls away. Yeah, well, we did that once upon a time, too. There's <laughs> a story in my book about we used to get six new pearls, we called them, new baseballs. they take down the bullpen to warm up every game. And old Ranger Stadium, our bullpen was sunk halfway in the ground, so it was half above, half below, and right against the bleachers. And these little kids would come up and say, Mister, can I have a baseball? And you'd look up at their parents sitting there smiling and say, Well, you get us some nachos and a Coke and we'll give you a baseball. <laughs> well, we did this every night. We traded away three, four balls every night to the kids. And we had one night where we're in the eighth inning and Johnny Ellis, our bullpen catcher, decides he needs a Coke. So he trades our last baseball away to the kids. <laughs> And I said to Johnny, I said, what the hell are we going to do if we got to warm up? He said, ah, it's 7-1. to one. Medich will get him out. Ninth inning, one out, 7-4. to four. A couple guys on base, and the phone rings. Get Kern up. <laughs> so I looked at Johnny. I said, what the hell are we going to do now? Ask the kid for the ball back? <laughs> we look in the stands. They're gone. Of course. And so Johnny says, it's dark down here. We can fake it. So I get up on the mound and fake like I'm throwing, and Johnny is... <laughs> throwing it back to me and we would have gotten away with it but the but the fans were laughing so hard that night cost me 500 bucks oh shit yeah yeah but i would have thrown it away anyways <laughs> but i could i could get comfortable throwing eight pitches on the mound when you came into the game that's what you got was eight pitches and uh i had a very elastic arm and uh 
you know, when I wasn't throwing the ball good, I was throwing 92, 93. Mm-hmm. So it still was better than most. Yeah. What, a guy like Charlie Huff. Charlie Huff didn't look like a pitcher. Or didn't look like an athlete, I guess I could say. He threw a knuckleball. Did he have the fire in him like Nolan Ryan did when he pitched, or was he just kind of work business-like, work-like? Just- no, Charlie, Charlie was an interesting individual. As you said, you put 100 people in the room, tell them to pick out the athlete, and Charlie would be number 99 they picked. Uh, Charlie had a bad hip, and so he couldn't run, which was our conditioning. And so you'd see in the middle of a game, you'd walk in a clubhouse, Charlie would be doing his conditioning. He was sitting on a bike pedaling the bike, drinking a vodka tonic, smoking a cigarette, and watching TV. This, this, was, this was Charlie conditioning. Has the most wins of any Ranger ever, most innings pitched. He's a great pitcher. Char- Charlie was a great pitcher. I mean, he ate catchers. The catchers didn't play catch with him. They played fetch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was a different world, but Charlie... Charlie had a fire in him. It wasn't visible, but Charlie had a fire in him. Uh, I, I love Charlie. I tell a story in the book about the first time he got traded to Texas. And second night after the game, Charlie says, you know, he says, I'm, I'm not sure if I can find my house. I'm over by the lake. And I said, well, Charlie, where do you live? He told me, and I said, hell, I only live about four blocks from you. Here's my phone number, and I wrote down emu. And then my phone number and gave it to him. If, if you have any trouble, call me. I'll be glad to come over. So Charlie tells me two days later, his wife's doing laundry. And she picks up a shirt and pulls this number out. And she looked at Charlie and says, God damn it, Charlie, you've been in town two days. Who in the hell is Emma? <laughs> <laughs> it took me two days two to get, days to get, to get, get Charlie in hot water. So, uh... <laughs> he he threw a no hitter and lost it in the ninth or tenth inning, if I remember right, on a pass ball and something else. Surely you just yeah pass ball with Charlie. The people <laughs> the, the young people they don't realize he, he threw a knuckleball. I guess Tim Wakefield was the last knuckleball pitcher to really be successful. Yeah, in the majors, and fuck he'd throw the ball, but fuck he'd have seven pass balls a game or something. Oh yeah, yeah. Didn't yeah, Gino I'm, give up six pass balls in one game or something? Gino too? set a couple records for most pass balls in the season with 35, I think, and most in a game with either 6 or 7. And that was all Charlie. And you can't you can't blame Gino. Gino was a pretty good catcher, but my lord. I mean, Charlie had these special made gloves. Yeah. That that looked like a 2 2 gallon basket that he'd give the catchers to catch. And with Charlie, the ball never did the same thing twice when it came in. It duck, dip, it dive, it shoot to the left, it shoot to the right. I mean, Gino, after catching him, would have bruises all over his body. Why do we not see more knuckleball pitchers? Because it's not hard on the arm either. It's not hard on the arm. It's hard to get your act together to get it over the plate. And it's and and like everything else, they want to see speed. They, the managers don't like it. This is why you don't see any bunts. You don't see any hit and runs. They figure a home run is where they want to be. So they've got everybody swinging from their ass. And, I mean, eliminate the shift. Come on. You got to, you got to, you, when you got the third baseman behind second, bunt the ball down third base and get on base. Yeah, it's easy, easy hit. Yeah, but they want a home run. That's why the shift works because everybody's going to pull the ball. It's the hitters not being able or not wanting to make that shift. 
See, I think if you can go back in time in sports, like if you went back and played the NBA and you took the NBA guys today and they played against the guys in the 70s, I think the guys today with the rules they have would beat the guys from the 70s. Now, if they could foul like they did in the 70s, I think, or the 80s, I think the Detroit Pistons would kill whoever's the champion now just because they would hack the shit out of them into the physical part. Football, if you played the NFL guys, and if Terry Bradshaw and the Steelers in the 70s played the Rams today, the Rams would beat them, beat them by 40 points, I think. It's just a faster, bigger game. But baseball, if you took the 70 baseball players and they played today, I think the baseball players in the 70s would win today. Oh, I think so, too. I think so, too. But 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 then back then you had 150 minor league clubs feeding 22, 24 major league clubs. So your talent was so much better at the upper level. I mean, and – so that's going to be a big part. I think your average talent back then was considerably better than it is now. But I, in the other sports, I don't think so. Basketball guys are taller and bigger and faster, and football players are definitely bigger and faster. But baseball is timeless. Well, to me, to me, basketball these days is gorilla ball. They they simply don't call fouls. Back in our time, you had palming a ball when you turn the ball over. Yeah. My, now that's what everybody that's does what is. is palm yeah. the ball to be able to move. Steps. Now you can take, what, three, four steps to the basket when you're stuffing? Mm-hmm. You took two, and it was traveling. It, it's just a whole a, different game. I went to a basketball game last night. Same thing. Kid literally was dribbling. He went to make a move. He took the ball like this, flipped it over. And just carried on about his day. Yeah. It's like, what the hell are we doing here? It's, it's a different. That's bl- everybody sees it. But see, baseball hasn't changed. Strike zone's the same. Baseball's the same. That's what I'm saying. And and I think the guys back then were 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 better at their trade than they are today. I think it's the only sport that that's the same because players may be faster now, but they don't have the basics down. They don't they don't play baseball like they did before. Like the butt. How many guys like stealing bases? Ricky Henderson, Lou Brock, Vince Coleman. Otis Nixon. I don't. I don't even know. I don't watch baseball much no more. But I bet the guy who's led the league in steals last year didn't have fifty to sixty steals. No, there was there would be two guys on some teams that had fifty or sixty steals. Well, that's that's because little ball no longer exists. It's long ball. Yep. And so you don't have the bunts getting on base. Rod Carew. If he was over three in the ninth inning, there was a ninety percent chance he was dragging a bunt because he wasn't going over four. Right, forty-seven last year steals was, and that was, and forty was the next, thirty-two after that. That's the way home runs used to be back in the day. Because when I grew up, if someone hit thirty home runs a year, that was a good season, a real good season. And now you'll have guys hit forty home runs by All Star break almost. They always fade away before they get to the end. But you know, just a different game. Well, you're not allowed to pitch inside. You get screamed at if somebody looks like they're going to get hit. Right. I mean. I used to have managers come out and tell me to hit the people. Frank Robinson came out once in Cleveland and looked at me and said, hit the next guy or don't come back to the dugout. Yes, sir. Turn, okay. Turned around and left like, okay, <laughs> I spent six years in the Marine Corps. This sounds like a gunnery sergeant. We can make this work. What did this guy do that, that you had to hit him for? The guy before him was beating our brains out. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> just whack them and yeah. get whack. in their head a little bit? Because baseball, it, shit carries over from series to series. Like, you do us wrong here, we're going to remember it. I'm going to hit you. The best thing was Pete LeCock. Pete LeCock hit the last home run off Bob Gibson. 
Five years later, they're playing an old-timers game, and Gibson hit Lecoq. <laughs> you got to love that. <laughs> Tell Andy about the 10-cent beer night. Oh, 10-cent beer night in Cleveland. They, the thing was is the Rangers in Cleveland never got along to begin with, and they had a fight in Texas. Somebody got hit. Somebody got retaliatory hit, and blah, blah, blah. Had a fight in Texas. So they go back to Cleveland for the next series, and uh, they're talking to Billy Martin, who was a manager of, of Texas. And uh, Billy says, ah, I'm not worried about a fight. There's not enough people come to Cleveland Stadium to cause trouble anyways. <laughs> well, the Cleveland radio starts getting on this and really promoting it. So five days later, they have 10-cent beer night in Cleveland. You could buy no more than six beers at a time, 12-ounce <laughs> beers. Yeah, and they sold 60,000 beers that night. Had 20,000 people, a lot of them young kids. Well, of course, here we go. You start whacking each other, and, and it was inevitable. And then Burroughs was playing right field, and a fan jumped out of the stands and grabbed his hat. And Jeff cold-cocked him. Was he a big guy, Burroughs? He was stocky. He was maybe six six one, but big upstairs. And then the fans started pouring on the field. And that night they had like 30 streakers. They had <laughs> half a dozen girls run on the field and pull up their blouse. And, you know, good times. Good, good times. Everybody's <laughs> drunker than dirt. You know, they're having a grand time. And the fans start pouring on the field. And everybody's hitting everybody. They're trying to get off the field, and Nestor Shylock was an umpire, and he had to call the game because they stole all the bases. The fans, <laughs> the fans picked up all the bases, and one of the best lines of that night was a reporter the next day, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer said, and the fans stole more bases than the baseball players did last night. <laughs> yeah, so it, was, it, was, it had built up. Uh, the radio in Cleveland had really saturated everybody to come out and raise hell with the Rangers. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a perfect storm. Did, back then, did the umpires, did you, you, you had the same. I went to a baseball game with you one time in Arlington, and you fish the umpires, you waved and talked to them and stuff. You guys got to have quite a relationship with some of them guys, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you had a good relationship to them. You know, I won't mention the umpire's name, but one of my biggest things was my first year we're playing against Oakland. And I get called in the game. I'm rookie, and and the umpire, home plate umpire, comes out to the mound, rubs up the ball, and says, "I hate this son of a bitch. Just get the ball near the plate." <clears throat> and he walks back, and who walks the plate but Reggie Jackson? Oh wow! I threw the first pitch about three inches outside. Strike one, and Reggie just starts screaming. Throw the second pitch about three inches inside. Strike two, and Reggie's livid. I throw the third pitch. I mean, above the letters for strike three. Reggie throws a bat, gets thrown out of the game. All, but this is, and you learned as a kid, don't screw with the umpires <laughs> because you will pay. So yeah. your first player you ever faced in the majors, you struck out Reggie Jackson. No, no, this this was my first year. Oh, okay, my my first year in the big leagues. Yeah, I, I tell a story about Hank Aaron, too, you know, great one of the greatest home run hitters ever, that Hank in spring training, 74, I'm a rookie, he's with Milwaukee, and I've got him 3-1. and one. 
and I throw a good 95-mile-an-hour gas right down the middle of the plate, and he takes this weak-ass swing at it. I mean, really looked bad, and I thought, thought to myself, man, I could run the ball by this old man. I wind up through the same pitch about three mile an hour faster. He hit it so hard off the left center field wall, the center fielder held him to a single. Wow. And, you know, I'm kind of like, you got to be shitting me. And I look over at first base, Hank, and Hank just goes, he set my ass up like you wouldn't believe. Wow. So he... He, he set you up. He set me up. By, let me take a half-ass attempt at this. And, and, the, and the knowing kids, you're going to throw it again. You, this young kid, he's going to oh. get all cockstrung on me yeah. and really run it in here, and yeah. I'm going to be waiting. Did you ever strike him out in a real game? I did. I struck him out th- that year, uh, and it was amazing. In Milwaukee, I tried to throw a slider low and away at 2-2 and threw a backup slider on the inside corner, faked him out for a call strike three. That's pretty impressive, though. <laughs> no, it wasn't. That wasn't the pitch I wanted to throw. It wasn't where I wanted you to throw. Out, you struck out Hank Aaron. I struck though. out Hank Aaron, but but the caveats are yeah. are what's great. Who gave you the most hell of anybody you played against? Yeah, Mark Belanger, Blade, shortstop for the Orioles, best shortstop in the world, lifetime batting average of two ten. Blade hit seven fourteen off me. Wow. In thirteen years. Wow. But. He hit 500 off Nolan. Well, that makes you feel oh, there you go. He never took a full swing. He hit the ball just hard enough to get it over the infield, but not to the outfielders. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tried everything with Blade. I hit him. <laughs> I mean, did everything I could. I mean, I could come in the game in the eighth inning. You could have Boog Powell, Frank Robinson, and Brooks Robinson on the bench. And who would I see? Blade. Blade. Every time. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and Carlton Fisk. I had trouble getting Fisk out. He was real quick inside. What was Don Zimmer like? The gerbil? Yep. Uh, I didn't care much for the gerbil. He uh, he was entirely old school. One of his nicknames was Popeye. Um, is he a horse's ass? I thought so. Yeah, he either come across as you either really like him or he was a horse's ass. Yeah, I, I, I didn't care for Zim. What about Yogi Berra? Yogi Yogi was a – Yogi Bear and Mickey Rivers are the same same two – I mean, Yogi had 10 rings, which is unreal. And Yogi, anything Yogi touched financially turned to gold. Uh, but Yogi was one of the greatest guys there was. It just, you can't say anything but a plus for Yogi. Now, in the book, you talk about a guy that did not have really good English. I think it was a black guy, and I can't remember his name. Mickey now. Rivers. Yeah. So, do you tell, tell, he. He oh, had some country. He had country language. He was didn't he? well. Mickey was from the streets of Miami. Okay, and Mick, Mickey wasn't dumb by any stretch of the imagination. It's just his alliteration of the English language was awesome, and it was street language. And I can remember when Mickey got traded from New York to Texas, and George Brenner, Steinbrenner, and Billy Martin were always arguing, and Randy Galloway from uh, the. Dallas paper said to Mick, says, Mick, well, why didn't you and George Steinbrenner and Billy Martin ever have any problems? And Mick says, as George and Billy's nice. We's two of a kind. <laughs> 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 Mick, Mick couldn't play one day. He had an inflamed knee. And again, the press messing with him said, Mick, you're not going to play today? And Mick says, nah, I couldn't play. I's got tenderitis. 
The Galloway was at Fort Worth first, right? Then he went to Dallas, then back to Fort Worth. Is that no, right? no, Galloway was with the Dallas Morning News, and then very late went to Fort Worth, I believe, briefly. Jim Reeves, uh, Revo was the uh, Fort Worth. He's he's the one I ate his book on the plane. I'll tell you what he. Uh, oh yeah, the the final four pages, right? Yeah, yeah. He read a whole book, and they and Jim ate the four pages. Why? Well, so we Re- couldn't finish it. Revo had been reading this book on about three road trips. It, right. it was uh, John Dean, mm-hmm. uh, about twelve hundred pages, <laughs> and I had just screwed up a game in Baltimore. We, I was six and zero, oh and had guys on first and second, and we were up by a run, and they bunted down third, and I got over there real quick, grabbed the ball, and threw it to third, and Buddy Bell was standing next to me. And Buddy Bell was their third baseman, so there was no third baseman. So no third baseman. And my first thought was, if I threw it harder, the left fielder could have got it quicker. (laughs) Well, we end up losing the game, and it's it's really sad because we lost the whole series then. And so we get on the plane, and I'm pissed at myself. I am really, I'm livid. I mean, I lost this one all by myself. No help. And so we get on the plane, and Revo's sitting there reading the book, and I'm, just get in this mood. I'm going to do something here to lo- liven up the crowd. And so I grabbed the book from Revo and threw it to Sparky Lyle. And Sparky grabbed it, and Revo jumped at Sparky. Sparky threw the book back to me and grabbed Revo. And as he was holding we- Revo, and now remember, we're on a commercial plane. Right. The plane's full of people. And I slowly pulled out the last page and ate it. <laughs> The next page and ate it. I ate the last four pages out of his book and then threw it back to him. Yeah. And this kind of, kind of livened up the, the mood. I'm, I'm sure. Poor some bitch had to go store and buy the, read the last four pages. He didn't. He, and we did he see didn't him. finish it. And we did see him in a store the next trip. I think we were in Boston. And he's back in the back of the store, bookstore, trying to read the last four pages. <laughs> And we went up to the front and said, ma'am, there, there's a guy in the back steal, stealing your book. And we, we left. That's good, just good, good, good times. I'm and y'all were you. on a commercial flight with just regular folks that yeah, are yeah. going to their destination. I, I got a standing ovation. <laughs> that's, that's ballsy, though, because, like, you know, you, you messed up the game, and it's like, I'm going to go fuck with this guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a reporter. He was fair game. Yeah. He yeah. was a fair game. Was <laughs> Bob Hood's a friend of ours, and Bob passed away a couple of years ago. Bob was an outdoor writer for Fort Worth Paper for, I think Bob, only the only job he ever had was working for the Fort Worth Paper, wasn't it? Yeah, he started out delivering papers and then worked his way up to outdoor writer. And um, good friend of both of ours. Uh, you and Bob spent a lot of time hunting at different places. Can you tell the story about y'all going to Montana? Uh, well, we, we, we went to Montana. Uh, I know what you're talking about. I can't give me a hint. The particular line, the chemo man. Oh yeah. Well, we're, we go to Montana and we're going to go back into the Bitterroot Mountains fishing, and we go to a bar before, and Bob gets a, a little bit liquored up, and starts going over and talking to this guy, and ends up this woman, and ends up spending a night with her, and come to find out her. 
husband was on chemotherapy. Oh, he was in bed. He couldn't even get out of bed. He was about to die. Oh, no. <laughs> and Bob, Bob never lived that one down. <laughs> I, I talked to Bob about that story. Every time he was up here, except when he got cancer the last year, I thought, I'm not going to bring it. That's poor taste. And, and Dad told me, no, Dad told me when he left, he said, you should have said something to him. He said, Bob would have thought it was funny, Jeff. He said he did for the whole time. Yeah. He didn't care. Yeah. Bob, Bob was a good guy. He was a really good guy. Really good man. I really miss Bob. Well, you remember the day that we were shooting the muzzle loaders when we had all the fog goose hunting? Mm-hmm. I've I've loved to shoot muzzle loaders, and I've got two ten gauge percussion muzzle loaders, one made in the eighteen seventies, uh, Scott, and another one was a modern one. And so I took Bob out. We're going to hunt geese with the muzzle loaders. Well, we were with Jeff, and we lay out in the field, got everything going, and it's one of these days where there's an inversion. There's a fog, and nothing is lifting. And you can, these guys are calling away, and you can hear the geese coming in to the calls. You can't see them till they're about 50, 75 yards out. And all of a sudden, they show up, boom, boom, boom. Well, we're shooting these muzzleloaders with black powder, and the blue smoke is just <laughs> bellowing. You know, with 10 gauges, we're shooting 150 grains of black powder, yeah. double barrels, so there's four barrels going off. After about three volleys, the blue smoke is hanging. Now you can only see about 25 yards. And these guys are starting to get in my shit big time about these muzzle loaders. And so by the end of the day, we've got so much blue smoke in the air, you can't see your feet. Oh, shit. The geese are landing 20 yards from us walking around, and we can't, can't see them. Oh, my. Jeff Jeff has been in my case forever about that. Some good old times. Well, let's let's get off here so we can get Fergie well, hold on. on here. What okay. uh, what 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 made you want to write this book? Oh yeah. Oh, uh, sports. Uh, I won't say the, the the name of the company came to me about writing a book of funny ranger tales. Right. This isn't your average baseball book. This is this is the funny things on and off the field happen. Many of which we were already talked about, and so. I wrote the book, interviewed a bunch of ball players, got their stories, and then a month before I finished it, they went chapter many and went belly up. So this was 17 years ago. Oh, wow. So it sat in my files forever, and three and a half years ago, we moved Mm -hmm. uh, south of Fort Worth. And as I'm going through my packaging, I come across the book. And then last summer, I said, well, you know, we need to need to play with this so we resurrected it and added a few stories and 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 got the book going but it's it's these crazy tales i mean i was a three-time american league all-star in 1979 american league relief pitcher of the year a lot of good times remembered on the mound game wise but this is the stuff that i remember and absolutely love is the craziness on and off the field yeah and it's uh this is what friends are made of I mean, we'll, we'll talk to Fergie later, and he was one of my partners in crime. Uh, you know, we, we caused more trouble than, and just had a great time, though. Absolutely great time. And that's the same as, like, hunting. You know, the, the hunts are great, but the memories that I carry from year to year are the stuff that happened in the office. It's the stuff that happens around the dinner table. Deer, the deer, hunts are great. D- deer camp isn't right. about the deer you killed. It's about the bullshit that goes right. on. Yeah. The male bonding, shall we call it. Yeah. My wife would roll her eyes like, yeah, that's what you want to call it. <laughs> but it's just when men get together, 
it's a chuckle. And the one thing you got to remember is we do some really silly, stupid stuff in life. Mm -hmm. And the people that won't admit it and deny it ever happened are the ones that have trouble. The rest of us laugh and go, boy, we were really dumb that day. <laughs> Wasn't that great? You yeah. got live and let live. Yeah. You're a very underrated ball player. Very, very good. You had, You've been talking to my wife again. You are a very underrated <laughs> baseball player. One of the best to ever play and you get little credit for it. If you played today, you would make 15 to $20 million a year. Yeah, but I'd be an asshole, and then you couldn't get along with me. So it's better I made nothing, and I'm a nice, fine-standing-up guy, you know. So You had the greatest relief year ever in the history of the Texas Rangers. Uh, that I did. That I did. It was everything fell together that year. I started the season as Sparky Lyle's setup man. And uh, I come in the seventh, eighth inning, and... I pitched well enough that Sparky never got a chance to get in the game. Yeah, I still hold, I think, five or six Ranger records out of the bullpen. Most wins in a season with 13. The lowest ERA in a season of anybody with 100 innings or more with a 1.57. Most strikeouts in a season out of the bullpen with 139. Most inning pitched with 143. And the lowest, what they call an ERA plus, of any Texas Ranger pitcher that pitched 200 innings or more in their career with a 2.64. But um, it is what it is, you know. I mean, uh, I've never dealt, dwelt on baseball. My wife used to accuse me of playing baseball simply to finance my hunting and fishing. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's what we've done for the last 35 years is I've managed lodges in Alaska, Brazil's Amazon, uh, Argentina, Uruguay, I love being out in the field. Mm -hmm. if, if I'm killing stuff with a gun, a bow, and these days it's more with a camera than anything else. Well, if you shoot them with a camera, you don't have to clean them. Bing. And you get to shoot them again, possibly. Yes. Right. Uh, what did you do with your Rolades trophy? You got it at your house? And yeah, I think it's setting in the garage. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> you need to take that to a museum, Jim. Yeah, no, I'll probably give it to one of my sons. That'd be a great gift. They should they should put that up. That's a that's a hell of an honor. Well, there that in, I've got another trophy that's a big honor to me, and it's kind of inconsequential. But I spent seven years in the minor leagues. I've got a a sterling silver cup. It was a Triple A tops All Star team in Triple A in '74. I won 17 games and struck out 220 in 189 innings. And somebody winning 17 games in the minor leagues, it sounds inconsequential, but when you spend seven years there, that's big. Yeah. Um, before we get off here, you played in high school. You play, There was three kids in your class that you graduated that played in the pros, right? Majors. Yeah. Um, Terry Collins that managed the Mets. Brian Sullivan got as high as A-ball. And then our American Legion team, we had another guy named Dick Lang who pitched for the Angels. So on that American Legion team, we had four that signed professional contracts. Two played in the major leagues. One managed in the major leagues. Did y'all get beat ever? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we were... I, I played junior varsity baseball when I was a junior in high school. See? And then went on to do what you did. And spent 19 years in, in professional baseball. Yeah, don't, don't ever give up. That's right. That's what's amazing to me. Is you, you played 19 years. That's a long career. The careers haven't gotten any longer today. And, Unless and you're Tom Brady. Even he's only 22 years. Well, but 
you're right, but I'm just saying. Well, that's what I'm saying is, is the way back to your drinking the the story of the guy warming up his his idea of conditioning was a, a vodka tonic and a cigarette. Yeah. Before a game, and you, well, this you, wasn't you, before a game. This was in between games. But you you guys all had long careers. Oh, Even, and, and you didn't, you know, you didn't take care of your body the way that the guys are today. Well, I'll tell you what, wait till you talk to Fergie here next. He's 79 right now, and he retired two years ago. <laughs> Ra- Ralph Neely, you knew Ralph, I'm sure. Yeah. Ralph told me one time, he said, people would have shit if they'd seen us at halftime of the Super Bowl and the Super Bowls they played in. He said, we're sitting there drinking Cokes and smoking cigarettes, every one of us sitting in the locker room in the Dallas Cowboys. Right. And he go, Could you imagine today if you went in there drinking Cokes and smoking cigarettes? It's a different world, different breed. Guys were different then. Men were men then, you know. You, <clears throat> a lot of pro athletes are alpha males. There's no doubt about that. But alpha male in in, in in just your regular communities are not the alpha males they used to be. Well, I, I don't have a bun on my head. I know that. But I, I just think yeah, that's fascinating that's because exactly there's right. this notion now that you have to take care of your body. That, you know, you've got to do this and you got to stretch and you got to do yoga and you guys in the 70s and 80s just, fuck it, let's just go step on the mountain, let's do it. We did, but I'll tell you what, the way I feel when I get up in the mornings now, <laughs> you think, maybe I should have taken better care of this body. I mean, what what is going to work today? Yeah. Oh, that hurts. <laughs> what would you yeah. do different? I probably would have drank scotch instead of Crown Royal. <laughs> but that's what I'm saying. You wouldn't have changed much, though. No. I don't like scotch either. <laughs> Lewis Henderson told me you don't have hangers if you have scotch. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, Lewis. You know, you introduced me to Lewis the very first year we had the lodge here, which would have been shit long, 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 long time ago. One of my best friends in the world, good guy. And he's going to listen to this. So, Lewis, I appreciate you introducing me to Lewis. And you had a lot of good times. And we've got an old painting that Lewis, that Larry Kemp, another friend of ours, we got a lot of friends of ours are dead, Jim that we've known together. I, well, you know, people ask me about it. I tell everybody, everybody that remembers me is dead. <laughs> but uh, we've got an old painting we found, Lewis, that you, that's up here. That you, I'm going to get back to Lewis to get him put in his house because I, I bet he forgot he brung that up here to me when his place burned up. But anyways, I appreciate you being on here. You've been a friend for a long time and look forward to another 25, 27 years. Oh, boy, you're wishing. <laughs> and you can get your book on Amazon? I get to get the book on Amazon or Kindle. Or Kindle. 70s and 80s, Tales from the Texas Rangers. You might get a chuckle. Or you can email me. Go to emuoutfitting.com. My email's there, Jim Kern. And I'll be more than happy to send you an autograph copy for simply the cost of the book and shipping. Beautiful. If you're if you're a sports fan or you're a Texas Ranger fan, even at that, just growing up in the seventies and eighties, you need to get the book. It's a must read. It's very good and it's easy read, and I highly recommend it. I what? I call it my commode book because it's yeah. it's in short stories. You can sit on the commode and read, read one or two at a time. It depends on how proficient you are in the commode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate everybody for listening to us. God bless y'all and have a great week. Go check out all of our wonderful sponsors and check out Jim's book on Amazon right now. You can get it. Uh, check out Steak Plains Meat, Gundog Outdoors, Stanfield Hunting Outfitters, Looking Glass Duck Club Podcast, Lucky Duck, Dirty Duck Coffee, Shin Gear Waiters, Pacific Calls, Boss Shot Shells, Dive Bomb Industries, and Alpha Outdoors. <laughs> <laughs>